going to be reading today, <clears throat> we're learning about the last, um, first of all, that this week is Parshas Vayakel, the second to the last Torah reading in the book of Exodus. It is one of the four portions that discuss about the building of the tabernacle. Also this week is Shabbos Mavarch, and we're going to bless the month of Adar mm. too. So we're going to try to combine those two ideas in today's class. So, just last week, six days ago to be exact, there was a very big uh, high-tech merge. Intel bought a company called Tower Semiconductors in Israel, in northern Israel, in a little city, a little village called Migdala Emek. It's probably the largest building in the city there, other than the yeshiva that's there, is uh, <laughs> Tower Semiconductors. And this, this company was bought for about $5.4 billion dollars. This company, Tower of Semiconductors, I just have to look it up from Wikipedia, what they actually do is they make chips, and therefore Intel decided they want to make their in-house chips and also make a variety of different chips and things so on. And they have a company in Texas and in San Francisco, and they bought off this company for $5.4 billion. Now, this company, what's unique, well, it's another merger and acquisition, so what do I care about it? Well, what makes the story... Interesting is that this company, Tower Semiconductors, just a few years ago was on the verge of bankruptcy. In 19, uh, I think in 2004, that's what it was, 2004, they went on the uh, NASDAQ. They then, their stock fell, they started buying other companies until a new uh, CEO came in. And his part was to be able to build a company piece by piece together by getting outside investors, outside companies, and merging a bunch of different companies together and eventually built it today that they now were bought off by Intel. But if you look at the story, it's not just the story of, well, okay, a pretty uh, brilliant CEO, but it's the perseverance of that even though he was down in the tube, so to speak, and there was going to be no hope, but because of this perseverance and persistence of this individual, he was able to build the company back to what it was, even though, but small pieces one bit at a time. This is not only something in business, but in our day-to-day -day life. If we look at our life, every single part of our life, our life is made up of a bunch of different small different days. Every day makes a week, every week makes a month, every week, every month makes a year. And ultimately, if we look back at our life, we see that it's very ma it's made up of all these little different particles, but of these day-to-day -day activities that we did every single day. There's no one month that you'll say, that wow, that month was experiential. There's certain days that are good, certain days that are Maybe not that great, but at the end of the day, it's the days that we continuously see in this continuum that brings us to the life that we have. It's so in physical life, and it's so in spiritual life. Thomas Edison famously said, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. You can have the inspiration, but if you're not going to do anything about it, you'll be the greatest genius. You know, in the words of King Solomon, the person who has the idea, he doesn't make the bread. Who's the guy that actually makes the money? Is the guy, the hustler that goes out there, takes that idea, sells it, and makes money on it. Mm -hmm. So you can have the greatest ideas, but if you don't work on the ideas, you don't develop the ideas, you don't go out there and make those ideas, those ideas are nothing worth. Most greatest geniuses of all time, you will notice, have something in common, which is that they have a consistent schedule. They say Beethoven. He used to wake up every single morning. He used to take exactly 60 kernels of coffee, put it into his coffee, drink it, 
then sit down and write music until two o'clock in the afternoon. Then he would go out for a walk. He was like predictable on a clock, what he would be doing exactly at one time, and by 10 o'clock he was already asleep. He was on clockwork. Every single day he knew this is what he had to do, whether he was used to it, whether he was happy about it, not happy about it. Today, I mean, saying many times today, people think, oh, you know, especially in the new world, so to speak, people come into work at two o'clock. I think Google has its thing that mm -hmm. they want people to think out of the box. They are open 24 hours and people come make their own hours. They can stand, they can sit, they can roll, they can be upside down. Anything that to be able to think of different ideas to be able to come up with different things that they do. And the same ideas if we look in Jewish law. There are many things in Jewish law which takes it a step further and says that what makes it our life, how do we create a certain system of life is by doing things in routine. We wake up every single morning, we say modani, we pray three times a day, we put on tefillin. A lot of Judaism is based on a routine, a consistent routine, which seemingly becomes part of your nature. And once you do the routine enough, every single Friday night is Shabbat, there's a certain routine that we do, and every Shabbat looks the same, every Sunday looks the same, every Monday looks the same, to a certain extent. So what is it about Judaism that loves routine so much? Isn't routine boring? Doesn't routine take out the excitement of life? Doesn't routine not give you any uh, passion excitement. or love or lust to be able to do something different? Isn't it get boring after a while doing the same three prayers every single day? So what is it? But we find, and we talk about it in this week, as we build the tabernacle, one of the sacrifices, and we spoke about it last week, which what the half a coin went towards, was a sacrifice that they brought every single day in the Holy Temple. The sacrifice that was called the carbon tamid, the continuous sacrifice, that's what it was called. Every single morning and every single afternoon, a sacrifice was brought in the Holy Temple. Today, we pray shachris, which is the morning prayer, and mincha, which is the afternoon prayer, to commemorate those sacrifices that were brought every single day in the Holy Temple. To the extent that the Talmud tells us, and you can see it in the first quote there in Jerusalem Talmud, that the Talmud says that when this sacrifice of the, the carbon Talmud stopped, that's when the destruction of the Holy Temple began. The Talmud says that what would happen was, the story was as follows, it says, the Jerusalem Talmud brings down that five things occurred on the 17th of Tammuz. Number one, the luchas were broken, which we spoke about last week. The Moses came down Mount Sinai and he saw the Jewish people serving the golden calf, and that's when he broke the first set of tablets. Number two, which was, the carbon tumid, the uh, sacrifice that was brought continuously every day, stopped. And then number three, because of that, the sea walls of the city were breached. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were breached. What happened here? So the Talmud talks about it, and the Talmud goes on to explain that the story goes that Jerusalem was sieged for three years. The Romans sieged Jerusalem for three years, stopping any type of anything going in or out. In Jerusalem itself, there were many wealthy people who were able to supply Jerusalem with food and with wood and for many years. But there was an internal struggle, which the Baryoyim, the Mafia, so to speak, the, uh, the guerrilla people wanted to fight the Greeks, the others didn't, and they went and they destroyed all the things that were there, forcing the Jews to, so to speak, into a war with the Romans. However, every single day, the Roman, the Jews would lower during the siege, would lower two um, pots of gold, and in it, you know, on the side of the wall, and in it, the Romans would then give them two animals, one for the morning sacrifice and one for the afternoon sacrifice. The head of the, the general of the Roman army heard about this, 
One of the non-Jews told him that this is what occurs every single day. So he told them, he said, that's it, we're making a stop to it. We're not giving them any more animals for their sacrifices. And on the 17th of Thomas, when they lowered those two pots of gold, they put in it two pigs that they, mm. uh, that they uplifted. And when they brought it up, they saw that it's two pigs they weren't able to bring. That was the first time ever that the sacrifice of the continuous sacrifice was not able to be brought. And that was the day that the walls were breached. So we saw a direct connection with the uh, seizing of the sacrifice being brought to the breaching of the wall. And the question is, what is so unique about the sacrifice that was brought every single day, seemingly in just a typical routine? In the morning, you brought the sacrifice. In the afternoon, there was nothing exciting. There was no passion about it. It was just a regular routine sacrifice. And we say, because of this, the wall was breached. Every single day, the sacrifice was brought. The sacrifice was brought on weekdays, on holidays, on Yom Kippur. No matter what other sacrifice there was in the Holy Temple, this sacrifice was brought as well. So what was so important about it? What was so great about it? Which brings us to the second step. As we know, as we mentioned, that this week we're going to be blessing the month of Adar 2. What does it mean, Adar 2? This year we're in a leap year. And because we're in a leap year, we're going to have two Adars. So we had Adar 1 currently that we're celebrating, and then Adar 2 is going to begin next week, Tuesday and Wednesday. Why do we have two Adars? And a leap year in the Jewish calendar is not one extra day, but it's a complete 30 days extra. The explanation behind it is that we know that the lunar year is 354 days, while the solar year is 365 days. The lunar year is made up of 354 days because the lunar year goes by months, Every month has about 29.5 days. In the times of the temple, when they would see the new moon, that's when they would say it's the day of Rosh Chodesh, that the new month began. But what happens is, because the lunar cycle is 354 days, and the solar cycle is, uh, excuse me, 365 days, we're always going to be 11 days short. That means if this year Passover is April 15th, next year... Passover would be April 5th. The following year would be March 20th. The following year, it will continuously be earlier and earlier. What happens then is that Passover is no longer going to be in the spring. You can have Passover will come out to be in April. You can come out to be in March. You can come out to June. And in fact, if you look at the uh, Muslim calendar, which they go strictly by the lunar calendar, they have Ramadan, sometimes this is June. Ramadan, sometimes September. Sometimes in the middle of the winter for that reason, because they go strictly by the winter calendar. So what did the rabbis do? What was the way of fixing this was? To make about every three years an extra 30 days. This way, the lunar calendar and the solar calendar will always be in sync. And you will notice that every 19 years, because it's a complete 19 year cycle, every 19 years, the lunar and solar calendar will, so to speak, match up. Because it starts over again, it's a 19-year cycle. It's interestingly enough, I think we mentioned this in the last class, that there's many other different calendars in the world. Uh, many of them become off and not accurate after times. The Jewish calendar is around since 4th century, and, uh, I mean, it's probably the first if you want to BCE, and it's ever since then, there's never been a time that it's been off. So the vision that the rabbis saw in creating this calendar was something which was unbelievable genius of how they made it. But the bottom line is that we have now is, what you're going to have is that Passover will always be either in the end of March or at the beginning of April. That means that Passover will always be within the spring season. Which over here the question is, 
What's the big deal? Why does Passover have to be in spring? So what? You can't celebrate Passover not in spring. What do you need for Passover to be able to have it in spring? That means, if I'm celebrating the exodus of Egypt, why does it have to be in springtime? It has to be warm outside in order to celebrate the exodus of Egypt. Why can't I celebrate in the winter? What's wrong if I celebrate Passover in the springtime? Especially that we know that today, if, you, if we're agreeing, let's take this even a step further, if we're always wanting to match up the lunar calendar with the solar calendar, who made the solar calendar? Who made the calendar of 12 months that we have in the year? So we know in 45, uh, the year 45 before BCE, Julius uh, Caesar of Rome came up with the concept of counting according to the lunar solar calendar of 365 days per year. In the solar calendar, there is no concept of months. The months, January, February, in fact, the first calendar that came up with Julius Caesar had only 10 months in the year. Because according to the sun, the sun only revolves 365 days. It's not a monthly thing. The moon is what comes out every 29 days, 29.5 days, and therefore there's months according to the moon. That's why you will notice January 1st or February 1st has nothing to do if the moon is full or not, or not there, or, you know, the beginning of the moon or whatever it may be. The Jewish calendar, Rosh Chodesh will always be, you won't see the moon, and on the 15th of every Jewish month, you will see a full moon. But the solar calendar has nothing to do with it, they just wanted to make it easier for people, so they split it into 12 different months. The question, and initially, as I said, it started off with 10 months, it started with March, January, and February, we weren't there. You can look that up on Wikipedia. But uh, the question is, why then was it so important that Judaism should have a lunar year, then coincide it with the solar year? If the solar year is when you know what the seasons are. April and May, April, May, June is going to be spring. This is July, August, September, is summer, and so on and so forth. Just make it then. Then you won't have any problems with Passover. You won't have any problems with anything. Why do I have to have both calendars? Why do I need both? And why did the Torah say, go according to the moon? The Torah was before Julius Caesar. And, it could have, and, the, and the solar calendar was also before Julius Caesar. In fact, it's called the Gregorian calendar, whatever it may be. The concept is that the, the going according to the months, if that is, so to speak, the accurate one, and because of that we are coinciding the solar with the lunar, just go according to the solar and make things easier. So there are many different reasons which are given. First, simplistic, so to speak, practical reasons why Passover had to be in spring. And then we'll get to the Kabbalistic and deeper practical uh, application that we have, we can find from it. So, there are certain technical reasons why Passover has to be in spring. If you notice, on the second day of Passover, there's a special mitzvah of counting the Omer. Counting the Omer is not merely counting down from Passover to Shavuos, but in the time of the Temple, and even today, if you ever see a package that has a kosher supervision, a lot of time it says on it, Yasha, the word Yasha, or in certain restaurants will say, bakeries will say the word Yasha. Yasha literally means old. According to the Torah, one is not allowed to eat from the wheat before the carbon omer, before the sacrifice of the omer was brought, which was on the second day of Passover. That means harvest always had to be after Passover. If Passover were to be in the summer, then I am missing a bunch of months of harvest. If Passover were going to be in the winter, then harvest doesn't start until another few months later. So practically speaking, in order for harvest to be with Passover and the carbon omer and the sacrifice of the omer so the Jews should be able to eat from the new harvest had to be in the springtime. That was one practical reason. Another practical reason which was given was because 
the, one of the biggest things that the Jewish people did every one of the three major holidays was come to the Holy Temple. If the holiday were to be in the winter, it would be very difficult to travel to the Holy Temple. Therefore, the holidays, if you notice, are spring, are summer, and then fall. And even the one that's Sukkot, that's in the fall, we don't even start praying for rain until the last June is back home. So we see that the rabbis were concerned to make it convenient for the Jewish people to come to the Holy Temple. Should the Seth, should the holiday be in the winter, it would be very difficult, the roads would be muddy, and they wouldn't be able to come, and therefore Passover was always set to be in spring. Another interesting reason which is given, which is the Rashi commentary gives on the Torah, and it says, why does the Torah have to tell me that the Chayda Sha'avit, that the Jewish people went out in the spring? Don't I know, if I look at the calendar and I see the month of Nisan, is in the spring. Why does the Torah stress that the Jewish people came out in the month of spring? And the commentaries explain and say that because the Torah wants to tell us that over here God was showing his love that he had for the Jewish people. That God could have taken the Jewish people out of Egypt in the winter and it would have been cold and it would have been uncomfortable for them to travel. But God was very kind to the Jewish people. And over here you see the difference between worrying and caring. I can worry about somebody, but what am I doing about it? Do I lift my finger to help them? I'm very worried about you. And therefore, so what? So you're very worried about it. So what did you do because you were very worried? Did you go out and help me? Did you go and get me a cover? What, what did you do about it? God doesn't just worry about the Jewish people. He loves the Jewish people. And because he loves the Jewish people, he said, I'm going to take them out of Egypt. Not only am I going to take them out of Egypt, but I'm going to take them out of when it's comfortable. Take, for example, when the Jews were taken out of the camps of Auschwitz. It was the middle of January. It was freezing cold. Nobody complained and said, hey, let us stay here until June. <laughs> right? As soon as they get out, they got out. But God, that he cared for the Jewish people, knew that he had to take them out, but he took them out at a time that would be also comfortable for them as well. So we see over here that the difference that we have in the relationship that God has with the Jewish people, it's not about worrying for the Jewish people. God is like our Father that cares for us, not only cares, but loves us, and therefore tries to make every aspect, even the most difficult ones, it should be in the easiest possible manner. So the question over here is, again, why then do we have to revolve our entire calendar and make a lunar and a solar and a leap Just go according to the solar calendar. I won't have any problems about spring. I won't have any problems about matching things up. And I only have that. So the Evan Ezra, who's a commentator from the time of Spain, one of the most uh, very interesting poets, had a unique life, went from Spain, then to Turkey, then to Egypt, to different places he traveled around. The Evan Ezra was the one that said, catch, said the saying once, that if he would make... Um, if you would make shrouds, nobody would die. That he can look at his luck. He was a very poor person. He tried selling his books even. But he, he was a very interesting writer, a Sephardic, a great scholar, commentator on the Torah. And he said as follows. And he says, if you look at the difference, why? We need to have the lunar calendar and the solar calendar. He says the lunar calendar does not have a new year. The solar calendar does not have a new month. What did God do? He took both of them together and he gave us a new month in the new year. What does that mean? If you look at the lunar calendar, let's say the Muslim calendar, they don't have a Muslim New Year. Why? Because it only goes by months. Every 29.5 days is a new month. That's all they celebrate is the new month. doesn't make a difference when there's a new year. Every 12 months, it just starts the cycle again. 
That's why they can't have a new year because the new year because their months always start differently. Sometimes the twelve months start by us June. Sometimes they can start in September. Sometimes it can be in the winter and the spring because there's no new year. Every single month is a new thing. The solar calendar, on the other hand, doesn't have a new month. It's only three hundred sixty-five days, as we mentioned. It was only split up into 12 months to make things easier for people to calculate what we were when and how. And initially it was only 10 months. So we see the concept over here is that the, what God did was that he put together the two of them. And he says he gave us a new year and then we can have a new month. But what was the need of these things? Why was it so important to take the new year and a new month? Why do we have to have both? And over here... The Rebbe explains to us, by looking at the words in Hebrew of month and year, and what these do in our life, it gives us such a deep message of how we go about life. The greatest picture, the greatest formation, and the greatest act that people make, or that God made, was taking the human being, maturing it, making it into an individual who will be an upright standing person. In the words of Job, he says, God created a person wild, selfish. A human being, when it's created, a young child, couldn't care less about anybody else. Except himself. Poops what it wants, eats what it wants, wakes up everybody what it wants. Mm. Doesn't that, a human being is born selfish, wild, no interest. I know we make pictures of angels and now they're so sweet. But at the end of the day, look at them. And what do we call a human being as they grow older? They mature. And a person who does not grow older and mature, what do we call them? Immaturity. Immaturity is not a blessing. If the young child was this angel and sweet and so, why do we make say a person's immature? Because what does immature mean? That they're selfish. They don't think about somebody else. They only think about, them. that's what immaturity is, right? Why? Because the person hasn't matured to realize, to recognize there's something greater than themselves. The person has to recognize that there's so much more into life, there's so much more into the, what happens around them. And therefore, how do we create, how do we make this fabric, this beautiful tapestry of life? How is this tapestry of life created? It's by one stitch at a time, one day at a time. But there are two important ingredients when you're making a tapestry. There's the stitching, but then there's every time you need to change colors to recognize where you have to make that new shade, that new color, to be able to see the beautiful image that the tapestry is going to bring out. If I'm just going to make a white tapestry, all the same stitching, what am I going to have? Nothing. It's not going to look like anything unique. It's because I go stitch by stitch by stitch, but then I change color, and then I continue. And then I change color, and then I continue. The same thing is also in life. In life, to be able to create this beautiful tapestry of life, we need to have two parts to it. We need to have the routine, and then we need to have, the every so often, the excitement. And these two ideas are alluded to the concept, into the word Shana, which means year, and Chodesh, which means month. The word Shana, which is year, which is, let's say alludes to the solar cycle. The word Shana in Hebrew means comes from the word Shonet, to repeat itself. It goes again and again and again. The sun, you don't see it going down and then back up. It's the same sun again for the same 365 days, going in circles, the same exact thing. The moon, however, is different. It weans and it waxes. It's small and it becomes big. It's small and it becomes big. Every time the moon comes again, 
It's a new excitement, a new idea, a new revolution. The same thing is also in our life. We have two different ways of how we govern life. There's the routines in life, and then there's the things we do for excitement. Then there's the happenings. There's the passion, the all of a sudden, the rejuvenation, the time where you say, I go out of routine to be able to get excited, to be able to do something different. And over here, the Torah tells us of what we need. Over here, the Torah says that if a person only is routine, is only boxed in and said, this is the way I am, doesn't, it's not good for them. They'll never be able to accomplish anything. Why? Because they're so stuck in their routine, they can't see out of it. They don't see how they can grow and become greater because of it. They'll just stay in the routine, and that's it. That's life. But look at the Tanya. The Tanya calls a person who may be learning something a hundred and one, a hundred times, routine. But he's not serving God. Why? Because that's routine. You do it a hundred and one times, then okay, you're serving God. Why? Because you went out of your routine. Routine's a good thing. But if you get stuck in your routine, then it's not a good thing. The same idea is also, what do you need to be able to get out of your routine? You every so often you need a chaydish. You need a month. Chaydish comes from the word chidush, new. You need to bring some new ideas into your life, some new passion, some new excitement. But if you're always going to be looking for something new, you're never going to be doing anything. Imagine that guy that gets into a job, and once he gets into a job, he's looking already where he can do someplace else. He'll never do his job properly. So you have to have a beautiful combination of synthesis of constant of routine, but at the same time also of renewal, of excitement, of passion, looking forward and embracing it. They say, they asked this uh, golf, I think, what was his name, uh, what was that famous golfer? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, yes. They asked him, how did you get so good at golf? Mm -hmm. So he said, I had, a, I had good luck, but the interesting thing is mm -hmm. that the more I trained, the better luck I had. <laughs> When we train ourselves, when we put ourselves in a certain scenario, in a certain way of thinking, it gives us the ability to be able to see greater venues. They say a story. Uh, there's a fellow in Crown Heights. His name is Nochem Markowitz. He's a, he's a, you know, pretty busy guy. He does, you know, routine. No, not the great. He's not one known as the rabbis, but he's a very big community activist. When he was a young kid, he was an Israeli teenager that came from Israel to New York. And he, well, let's put it this way, learning wasn't his forte. And he wasn't the guy that you would walk into the, into the yeshiva and he would be sitting and learning. He wasn't, he didn't have that enjoyment, if you want to call it, of learning. So he went into community activism, but it bothered him that he didn't have that desire to learn. And one time he went into the Rebbe and he asked the Rebbe, when was, you know, with the customary that young boys before their birthday were able to go into the Rebbe to ask the Rebbe a question. And he asked the Rebbe, what should he do? He doesn't have that desire. He doesn't have that yearning or desire to sit and learn. And the Rebbe told him a very interesting thing. He says, every single day, take five minutes, learn something, whether it's from the Torah or from the Shnayis, from the Talmud, but make sure it's not more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. Only five minutes, not a minute more. He says, every so often, let's say for Shabbos, you can add a minute. But make sure those five minutes are five minutes, one to five minutes every single day, whatever it may be. Not more than five minutes. And so he did. 
and he started every single day learning five minutes. And even if it meant he finished it, stopping in the middle of a chapter, he had his stopwatch, five minutes came, he stopped. Shabbos, he added one minute. It became all of a sudden so part of him that he looked forward to every single day to those five minutes. Because it became part of his routine, it became part of who he was. You know, they say when God comes, when a person comes up to heaven, they ask a person, what did you do in this world? What are your merits? And they ask him a few questions. One of the questions are, did you deal business honestly? But then they ask him, have you had, did you have set times for learning Torah? The question is not how much you learned, what you learned, was it in depth, was it what part of the Torah? Did you have set times? Was your routine a Torah-based routine? Doesn't make a difference how long. But your routine should be something which is engulfed, which is insaturated with godliness. Your routine should be that every single day, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, something of a direction of godliness. Make it part of your routine. There's a story. I heard the story from Dr. Weiss. He was the Rebbe's cardiologist 44 years ago, 1978. The Rebbe suffered a major heart attack in the middle of Simchas Torah dancing. And they had to empty out the shul, and the Rebbe then went up to his office, and his office, he made kiddush and so on. And that's where the Rebbe stayed for the next month and a half until they made his room into basically an ICU, until he recuperated and finally was able to get back his strength and continue back what he was doing. During this time, there was a fellow, his name was Dr. Weiss, Ira Weiss from Chicago, who was the Rebbe's cardiologist, and he would continuously come, even afterwards, do checkups on the Rebbe and routinely check, and he was the Rebbe's doctor, and then the Rebbe's doctor, and so on. In 1988, after the Rebbe's passed away, he said the following story. He said that he asked the Rebbe once, being that he's a doctor and a cardiologist, he's constantly on call, how does he have the ability, what should he do to be able to blend and to synthesize his family life with his busy life as a doctor, especially as a young, inspiring, aspiring doctor. He had to be on call more times than he wanted to, probably. And because of that, he was always running back and forth, and he wanted also at the same time as a young father to dedicate his time to his family. And the Rebbe told him, he says, you know, I have the same challenge, as I have a pretty busy life, and I have a wife. And he says, but every single day, this is what the Rebbe told him, I set aside 20 minutes that I spend with my wife and have tea with her, I think it was the words he said. And he told him as follows. He said, these 20 minutes that I have tea with my wife are just as important to me as putting on tefillin and praying every single day. That means this routine of spending time with my family, even though it's only 20 minutes, are just as important as everything else. What the Rebbe was saying over here is, the concept and the ideas of setting a routine are so important and integral that in order for us to have the daily inspiration, that means that when we come to the times of the Chodesh, that means when we get that inspiration and that excitement, if we don't have the routine, that inspiration and excitement has nothing to fall on you. You just have the inspiration and then it falls and evaporates. But if you have a routine and then every so often inspire it and invigorate it, with inspiration, then the routine becomes uplifted and becomes inspired and then becomes excited as well. That the first thing is that we need is the routine. And for that reason, we go back to our first statement. What was so important about the carbon tumid, the sacrifice that was brought in the Holy Temple? Why was it so important? 
was because of broad routine. It showed the continuity of Judaism. It is something which was constant. The Talmud says an interesting and a famous passage. The Talmud says as follows. The Talmud says that there were three scholars that got up, got had a debate, and said, what is the most important passage in the Torah? If I were to ask you, what's the most important passage in the Torah? So, when Ben Zoma said, what do you think the most important passage in the Torah is? Shema Yisrael, affirming the belief in God. Ben Nana said, what's the most important passage in the Torah? Love your fellow as yourself. Ben Pazi came along and said, what's the most important passage in the Torah? And the land you shall bring every morning and the land you shall bring in the afternoon as a constant sacrifice to me. They stood up on their feet and they said, the halacha is like Ben Pazi. That that's the most important passage. Out of all the passages, belief in God wasn't the most important. Loving your fellow Jew wasn't the most important. That Hillel said this is the entire Torah, the rest is commentary. But the sacrifice that's brought every morning and afternoon, that's the most important. The commentaries explain and says as follows. And says, look. Belief, every nation has belief in God. In their deity, whatever it may be. Love to a fellow, caring about another person. I don't need the Torah for that. God, you know, you gotta care and love any person. But continuity. To know to do something every single day, 365 days a year, no matter what, no matter who, no matter when, only Judaism has such a thing. No other religion in the world, no other person in the world, no other concept in the world has a commitment and a subservience and a routine that no matter what, you wake up in the morning, I say a prayer to God. That is a sacrifice brought every single morning and every single afternoon. This absolute continuity... This absolute commitment of subservience to God does not exist in any other religion. A Jew, a person, it's not what you feel that makes you a person. It's what you do that makes you a person. And because of that, if you are a person of routine and you continuously make the routine, I can feel all the loves in the world, I can believe in God as much as I want. But the bottom line is, do you check in or not? Are you there in the morning? Are you there as a part of your life, as a part of who you are? Then you know you're committed. If I'm in, come today, come tomorrow, that's not a commitment. That's not who you are. That's when I feel comfortable, I go and do it. Are you a spouse 365 days a year? Are you a mother 365 days a year? There's no taking vacation. The same thing is also Judaism. Our commitment to God is not based on how I feel that morning. Our commitment to God is absolute perseverance, persistence every single day of the year. And that's why the routine is so important. And because of this, we see the same idea when it comes to Pesach being in the springtime and why we need the two calendars. Because God says, what makes the Jewish people so special? What makes the Jewish people so unique, so great? Is that they have number one, the routine. That they know they can go according to the solar year. The 365 days of the year, we have that routine and that commitment to Judaism. But then we also have the renewal, the excitement, the passion. Let's take it, for example, also in the Jewish law. In Jewish law, we know that we do something which when you have a question, for example, if there's two Torahs, this week in the, Torah, in the synagogue, we're going to take out two Torahs. Which Torah are we going to read first? The Torah, the reading of the week, and then we're going to read the Torah reading of Shkalim. Why? 
because it's called Tadir Vashayini Tadir, something that happens more often, something that happens less often, will do the more often thing first. Routine takes precedence. But at the same time, we have a blessing called Shechiyana. That if I see something that I haven't had in a long time, or if I enjoy an idea that I haven't had, I make a special blessing for it. I need to be able to walk on both avenues. I have to be able to be a person of routine, but at the same time allow myself to get excited and look for things out of the box. We can't be stuck in one way or the other. We have to combine the solar year, we have to be a, the pregnant year, if we call it. It's not called a leap year according to Hebrew, it's called a pregnant year. What does it mean a pregnant year? A pregnant year means that the woman is pregnant, she has a life in it. Though the life right now is combined, it's one, but this breeds a whole new life in itself. The concept of the solar year and the leap year, and the solar year and the uh, lunar year coming together, yes, it's the routine, it's the same person, but it's breathing a new life, a new energy in the routine that we have. They tell a story about the fe- uh, Professor Yermio Braniver. Professor Yermio Braniver was a very uh, well-known uh, scientist in, uh, in um, what was it called, quantum physics, and uh, quantum physics and hydro... Um, something else, quantum magnetics, or I forgot whatever it's called, some type of thing over there. And he was a fellow who was born in Riga, Latvia. And the Latvians were more quick to hurt the Jews even before the Germans came and told them what they should do. They already were killing many Jews. His own father was killed by the Latvians. And he was able to escape, and he ended up with Chabad Hasidim, and eventually he became a Chabad Hasid. And when he came out of Russia... The Rebbe sent him to Israel, to the land of Israel, where there they built up a whole community called Shamir. He was the one that the Rebbe said that there's going to come a time that Russian Jews are going to come out of Russia and they're going to come to Israel. We have to prepare for them places for them to live and to have jobs. And then people laughed. This was in the 1976 when Krishna was coming and said, how is that going to happen? And thankfully he listened and he prepared. And like this, there were places for the Russian immigrants to come when they did come. So he has a story that when he was... Um, of becoming religious, he was asked to speak by a very big conference and about, you know, quantum magnetics, I think whatever it's called, whatever his field was. He won a Nobel Prize and some of the things. And, um, and he was starting to become religious, started putting on tzillin every day. And as you know, tzillin can only be put on before it gets dark. He gets up to speak. And this was his speech that he had to get up. And as he's giving his whole lecture and everything else, he realizes that the sun is going down. And he didn't put on film yet, yet. And as he's thinking, he says, no, I just started putting on film. I don't want to go put on film. But over here in the middle of the speech, this is a speech of a lifetime in front of a conference, all these big famous scientists. What should I do? And while he's speaking, this is going on in his mind. And he starts getting confused about what he's going to say because he's thinking about, how am I going to put on film? The sun's going down. He just stopped blank in the middle of the speech, walked off the stage, took a taxi, ran to the hotel, put on tefillin before it got dark. And after he put on tefillin, he dropped, so to speak, and says, what got into me? I just started putting on tefillin. Then all of a sudden, I felt the need and the urge to stop talking, do what I'm doing, middle of all this, and to go put on tefillin. What happened to me? And he realized that this is the core of Judaism. Judaism is different than any other religion. It's not that I go once a week or it's when I decide. Judaism is about changing your routine of life. 
changing your day-to-day -day way you feel, think, and act every single day, every single moment. It is the small, the routine things of life that are really the big actions. It's the small routine, meaning waking up every morning and just saying modani is what's the big picture in Judaism. Judaism is not necessarily about blowing up these big things. It's about the every single day little action that you do persistently. That is what it's all about. Our persistent, continuous commitment to God is what made Jewish continuity. That's why it's here today. And when we continue to look at this, and this is what the Torah is telling us, the carbon tummy, that sacrifice that was brought every morning, was because this shows what Jewish continuity is. This is what shows what the Jewish person is about. Setting times of studying Torah. It doesn't make a difference for how long. But the main thing is that you have a set time. Whether it's a minute a day, or three minutes a day, or five or ten, it doesn't matter. But it's a routine. It's something that's part of you. That if you were, if somebody asked, who is this person? He's here every time at this day. I learn at five minutes a day. That's what makes you unique. You pray three times a day. Why? Because we create this routine within ourselves that that's who we are. That defines our being. Because when you do something long enough, that's what makes who you are. And this, the Torah tells us, is what was the final factor of the Holy Temple, was what our calendar is about. We are the solar calendar and the, new, and the lunar calendar. We are both together with a routine while we're continuing to keep the passion and excitement in everything we do.